Daniel 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 once again. I'm going to continue this morning with introduction to this second half of Daniel, uh, chapters 7 through 12, Uh, but I do want to give some context to this introduction by reading the scripture here, uh, verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I want you to look over just to verse 17 of chapter 7 as well. And this is a section, some of your Bibles may have it labeled, the vision interpreted. In verse 17, look at what Daniel says. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So he gives us a sense, and these are kings and nations that are represented here in the context of this vision and dream, although they are revealed in these odd uh, descriptions, they are given to us here as these four kings and the representation of four nations. Now, that's important because this morning in this second portion of introduction, I want us to think about connecting the dots. Um, When you were a child, how many of you ever did connect the dots in some little book? How many of you also did color by numbers. Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, me too. Um, If you didn't do color by numbers and and that wasn't around or something of that nature, um, I'm sorry because color by numbers are really neat. Um, And I I hate you didn't get to experience that. But if you think about as you grew older, some of you, um, some of you stayed with connect the dots and color by number by doing the more intricate books and work 
to where it gave really, really, really intricate pictures of, you know, very detailed things, you know, birds in the Amazon and the trees and the wings and the colors, and you would have to connect each dot and then color it accordingly, and you would take, you know, days and weeks to do this one elaborate connect the dot and color by number picture. And when you were done, if you did it correctly, it would look really beautiful. I mean, it was just beautiful and you'd go, wow. And you'd show it to your parents and your parents would be like, wow, you know, because I've had my kids show me that thing, those things. And I'm thinking, I just don't know if I'd have the patience to do that, but it's really cool. Um, This is the kind of thing we're working on here in the book of Daniel is connect the dots and color by numbers. When you read these passages from 7 through 12 and you're getting into these detailed visions and dreams, too many people get caught up in every single little detail trying to figure out if the feather means this on the wing of that leopard or on the wing of that eagle or whatever, and they're trying to figure out what does that feather mean and what does the color mean and all these little details. This morning, I want us to think about what it means to see the connect the dots and the color by numbers in a bigger picture. That what we're seeing in Daniel, what we've already seen in chapters 1 through 6, and what we will see in 7 through 12 is a part of a bigger picture that has some bigger colors and some bigger uh, you know, connections to it, then, and not just zero in on these little bitty details. Some of the details might be important, and quite frankly, some of them people are conjuring up things, and it gets way out of bounds. So what is it that Daniel is doing here? We first have to dis- discuss further the context. We have to think about what we've already seen in Daniel 1 through 6. And it really gives us a theme of Daniel 1 through 6 and Daniel 7 through 12 that are very similar. That theme is that Daniel, in the whole of the book, the book of Daniel, and especially in prophetic passages, those passages that are upcoming, reveals the essence and consequences of the fall of mankind. We're looking at the essence of the fall and the consequences of the fall worked out in history. There's a big picture here. Adam's sin in the garden has caused big problems. And Daniel, in a big picture way, is giving prophecy to the big problems at hand in the present. He's going to say something about the big problems coming in the near future. And he's going to give us some identification of the only remedy for the big problems. So it's important when we look at Daniel not to get caught up in leopards with wings and bears that have ribs in their mouth and to try to make all kind of squirrely things out of that and get ourselves off in wonky world because if we do that we'll completely miss what's happening in the whole of redemptive history 
in that sense, we have to ask one question this morning in looking back and thinking ahead. Why was Daniel in exile? Why was Daniel even in this position to begin with? Chapters 1 through 6, we've already seen there was an unfolding work that Daniel was doing where God used him before the kings of the nations. He wasn't just used in an Israeli sense. No, he's used to to speak the truths of God in mouth, word, and also in life to the kings of the pagan nations and primarily to some of the, the largest and greatest kings and greatest pagan nations. But we also have to understand that there's even a greater context to why Daniel is in exile. Number one this morning, Daniel lived in exile due to the sin of Adam and all his race. Daniel lived in exile due to the sin of Adam and all his race. If you're going to understand Daniel, you've got to understand there's a big context. Daniel was in exile not primarily due to his own sin. That was a secondary issue. Certainly, we're not saying Daniel's perfect. But Daniel is in exile when he's a teenager. Did God put Daniel in exile simply because of what Daniel had done? Or that Daniel had been declared a sinner personally? No, Daniel's in exile because of something that's long-standing and it's been going on a long time. And it's the sin of Adam and all his race. He was in exile due to Adam's sin and all the subsequent generations. Each covenant of promise. When I speak of the covenants of promise, I'm speaking from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm, I'm thinking about the sense of understanding uh, the, the Noahic covenant, Adamic, Noahic, uh, that which is Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. Those covenants. In those covenants are worked out the whole of redemptive history. Progressive in its nature. And each one of those unfolded in Scripture comes with consequences upon disobedience. What we see in every covenant worked out is God dealing with his people by promise, and yet his people continue in sin against him. The whole of the world is in sin. Sin is the main picture. If we were to put that to a number and a color, we would probably, in our modern day culture, have the the number 13 and the color black. It's dark. It's dark. Daniel serves at a particular time in covenantal history. Now think about that for a minute. Most of the time, people go to the book of Daniel, and they just want to look at Daniel, and then they want to talk about Revelation. But you have to realize, before you talk about Revelation, Daniel is actually in his time serving in a particular time in covenantal history, in the context of what God has already been doing. He's in this line. He's he's downstream of the waters of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. As one teacher noted that to have any thoughtful and thorough discussion 
of the far future end times, that big word eschatology, to have any thoughtful and thorough discussion of the far future end times, Christians must be well-versed in the history of the Old Testament. Not just Daniel, not just certain portions of Jeremiah, not just certain portions of Isaiah, not just certain portions of uh, Zechariah, uh, you know, Zephaniah. Those things are all important, but they are all in an encompassing context of this flow of the progressive revelation of God's covenant promise being worked out. And the first overarching theme of why Daniel is in exile is looking at this flow from what happened out of the garden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and ultimately they were cast out. What we see next is Cain's sin of murder. That flow from that point forward of Cain's sin flows to a point in Genesis 6 that we start to see and recognize how evil mankind had become. What Moses wraps up for us in two chapters is an unfolding of the world and the progressiveness of sin. That progressiveness was so wild, even we have to say it was so perverted that God himself brought about the flood. So Daniel lived in the context and worked in the context of the exile because of the sin of Adam. But Daniel also lived during the unfolding of cosmic consequences due to that original sin and this perpetual pervasive depravity. Think about the flood and what God had said. Think about the reality of the flood when Noah had preached to the people and he's building the ark and the waters rise and they come and people begin to realize it's really happening. Who knows the numbers that drowned that day all over this earth. The bodies floating as the ark is safe. Well, the seed is protected, that promised seed from Genesis 3. Through the line of Noah, it's protected. And yet after the time of Noah, is sin done away with? No. It doesn't take long. Sin comes about through Noah's family. And it continues Think of all of the context of its continuing nature. It's so pervasive in its nature, it's affecting the whole of the context of this earth and all of the cosmos. Every dying star dies because of the sin of Adam. Every nation raised up that works in perversion is raised up in the sin of Adam. After the flood, 
we see a period of time where the nations continue to rage and rage and rage more, even to the point that the nations rage against not only God, but God's people, Israel. Oftentimes, I've termed them to you as the ites. They're not all ites, but to name a few, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Moabites, Oh, the Philistines, sorry. All these nations rising up, problem after problem, coming against God and His people. I mean, they're just smashing against them time and time again. And God's people are having to come in contact with them. And at times they deal with it rightly through uh, the work of of God's uh, speaking to His people through His prophets. Other times they, they don't do that and they don't follow along. And these people keep coming and smashing on them time and time again. Until you have these nations... The Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Assyrians rise and they conquer Israel, the northern kingdom. The Babylonians rise, take over the Assyrians, take over their territory, including the northern kingdom, and then they come and they take over Judah, the southern kingdom. Daniel is living downstream of all of that. He's in exile because of all of that being worked out over several thousand years. And in chapters 1 through 6, it's Daniel prophesying to the nations against the pervasiveness, sinfulness, and sinfulness of his day. And he's doing it to these kings. We see in these first chapters, 1 through 6, God humbling Nebuchadnezzar, bringing him to his knees. And it's Daniel who was used as God's son, as a mouthpiece, to speak these truths. We see Belshazzar in all of his haughtiness, We see him brought to his end in one night. God sovereignly judged him. God sovereignly humbled one king and judged another. But it's standing in the line of all of this that came before it. I want to give you an observation at this point. It's our first observation. Sin has lengthy, deep, and complicated consequences. Now, I, I literally, in a few minutes, scratched the surface of the lengthy sinfulness of the world, the deep and complicated consequences of that sin. If I wanted to go in depth, we would go back and look at the life of Saul. We would go back and we would look at the issues of David in his kingship. We would think about what Abraham did in his time. We would think about the context of Moses near the end of his ministry. 
we would go in to the temple of Dagon. We've scratched the surface, and we have to see that sin has lengthy, deep, and complicated consequences. And those consequences are so deep that they involve the cosmic nature of the whole of creation. And Daniel's being used at a point in time in the whole of that cosmic understanding. Which means anytime we talk about Christ, that's what makes him so amazing. Is the reconciliation that Christ brings is not only to the nations, it's to the whole of the cosmos, the earth groaning and waiting. Number two, main point number two. Daniel lived in exile due to the specific unfaithfulness of Israel. Daniel lived in exile due to the specific unfaithfulness of Israel. There's a sense in which we see the broad, big picture of the sin of Adam going throughout the whole of the nations and the world and every generation. Every human is conceived in sin. Every human is born with a sin nature, inclined to sin, first and foremost, the big picture. But Daniel also lived in exile due to the specific unfaithfulness of Israel. Israel, God's people, called out. God rescued them from Egypt. God is the one that brought them into the wilderness and protected them. Even while they grumbled and griped, God is the one that gave them the land. God is the one that gave them Joshua after Moses. God is the one who continued to unfold to them His great grace and mercy even as it didn't take them very long to create a golden calf after they were gone from Egypt. God was so gracious in their sin that after they form this idol, God gives them not only his moral law, which they had written on their hearts, he gave them a very specific civil ceremonial law for them to work out among the nations who they were as God's people. And yet not even the Israelites stood righteous in God's court. When you read the Old Testament, you're reading not only the unfolding of sin in its great big picture across the whole of the globe, the atrocities of all the other nations going against each other and going against God's people, the great atrocities put into the whole context of the world. But you're also reading a specific nation, an ethnic nation that God brought out to be a display that in their own ethnicity as this nation sinned against God even though he gave them specific law for them. God gave them everything they needed to be in obedience to him. 
Israel for centuries broke God's law. They predominantly mixed lifestyles with pagan cultures and worshipped pagan idols. Sadly, Israel as an ethnic nation abandoned being the display to all the nations of God's authority, God's reign, and God's protection over them. They exchanged what God gave them for the sinful choice of Adam and Eve. They wanted to reign over themselves. We see that, don't we, in the unfolding of how the kings came about. They wanted to reign over themselves. That's no different than what happened in the garden, right? Adam and Eve were saying, we want to reign over ourselves. It's in this background that we begin to think about that big word, eschatology, or the idea of the end times. As one writer notes, eschatology did not arise when people began to doubt the actuality of God's kingship. But when they had to learn in the greatest distress to rely in faith alone on God as the only firm basis of life and that it was confessed that the holy God remained unshakable in his fidelity and love to Israel. Daniel is standing right in the middle of some of the greatest stress of Israel's existence. Everything Israel has known is being obliterated. The visions that are given to him in the time of Belshazzar are a time somewhere around 540 B.C. That means that Solomon's temple has already been destroyed. The two-part exile and captivity has taken place. Ezekiel is prophesying among Israel at this point. And Daniel is seeing this vision, knowing and understanding that God is doing something that is mighty and great. He, according to verse 3 and 4, is stirring up the nations. And the nation of Israel sits right in the middle of that. And they sit right in the middle of it because of their disobedience. Israel learned the meaning and importance of the future only under great duress. I want want you to think about that for a second. We're not much different than Israel. You want to know why? Robin said it this morning. He gave some implication to it. Scott gave some implication to it. The context of all this happening at once, people get comfortable in their settings and their situations, and what do they say? I got it pretty good. They start looking at themselves, maybe even glorying in themselves. God is bringing Israel to its very end. So they are put in a place that they have to say, how do we ever get out of this? When they had their nation, their land, and their temple... When they had the things that they wanted, they continued to have all the temples and the idol worship 
to the Asherahs and the Baal. And they had all of these pagan idols that they were worshiping. They kept the high places as the scripture says. But they could have their temple worship on the side over here. And now God in the nations is saying, nope, I'm going to take your land. I'm going to have your temple destroyed. Solomon's temple was magnificent. You don't have it left. It's not there now. All that I gave to you, God says, that you took for granted. Now Israel is having to think about future hope, future grace. Is there hope? Is there grace? This is often how God uses the issues of our own sin and purposes our own dire straits to deal with our souls that we would learn to trust in him alone and no one else. It's still the problem of remaining flesh not to trust in God but to trust in ourselves, to trust in others, to trust in countries and states and nations, to trust in mankind to solve the problems for itself. These visions given to Daniel have a great context to say no one else can be trusted to solve the greatest problem of the world than God himself. And it's always amazing to recognize that Daniel lived in the exile due to that specific unfaithfulness of Israel. But what we learn through that is that even in the midst of that, God loved his people. Even through their unfaithfulness, God loved his people. And we have to recognize that this love was not a love simply for an ethnic nation. This was a love for the believing ones among that ethnic nation. This is a love for those who believed like their father Abraham did. And it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Certainly the nation as a whole profited at times. But ultimately the nation was plundered over centuries and dispersed over the period of two decades during the lifetime of Daniel. We need to see Daniel in chapters 1 through 6 and now going into 7 through 12. Daniel represents the believing ones. He represents the believing ones and he will prophesy for the ultimate comfort and assurance of the believing ones. Those who are not believing, their comfort will still be trying to be worked out in themselves because they do not have a circumcised heart. Their heart is not a heart of flesh, it's a heart of stone. 
They're the ones still worshiping the idols. Daniel stands for us as one who says, no, I worship the one true living God and him alone. I do not give in. But many Israelites did give in. Even in the time of the exile, they continued to give in. The unbelievers in Israel will only recognize the national corporate downfall. They will only hope in a physical resurgence. Because that's what they keep looking for. But if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the hope that King Cyrus would give that they could go back and reinstitute the temple and build the walls of Jerusalem for the believing ones, it was not about a physical ethnic resurgence in and of itself. It was that they could go back and worship God rightly according to the law that he gave to their forefathers. But they also went back with a hope for the future. In a coming reigning Messiah. That the ancient of days was the one that would be set up on this throne. The believing ones. They were the ones returning from the exile believing in the prophecy of Jeremiah 31. The hope of the new covenant, the day when each one will not need to teach one another, know the Lord your God. How is it that you don't have to teach someone to know the Lord your God? It's when their heart's been changed. Can you imagine the nation Israel having all of God's word to them, having the the oral history, having the writings that had been given to them, and they're having to tell people, know the Lord, know the Lord, know the Lord, repent, believe in the Lord, God, know Him. As a nation, not every one of them was converted. Jeremiah's prophecy is a coming day. When each one will know the Lord, the believing ones will have a circumcised heart. Daniel stands in the midst of all of that history of the nation of Israel. I'll give you another observation here. Sin is markedly rebellious with revelatory knowledge of God's faithfulness. Sin is markedly rebellious with the revelatory knowledge of God's faithfulness. It's one thing to say, Adam's sin made me do it, which is not a good excuse at all. 
But it's another thing to sin when you've been given God's word. Specifically. To do it knowingly and willingly. What does that say to us? In our new covenant understanding of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ living in a time after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord after his ascension. What does that say to us? I would say to you Another great reason we need the Lord's table. Another great reason we need confession and prayer. Because we live with his word. And we've heard it taught. And we've read it. And we still walk. At times knowingly, willingly committing sin against our one true living God. Well, thirdly, Daniel lived in exile due to the immense faithfulness of Israel's God. Daniel lived in exile due to the immense faithfulness of Israel's God. God was faithful. Daniel was not put into exile alone. He was not put into exile without purpose. God was dealing with his people and he was dealing with the enemies of his people. You see, we have to recognize that when we see prophecy unfolding, we're first seeing that God promised the dissolution and desolation of Israel and the enemies of Israel. God promised the dissolution and desolation of Israel and the enemies of Israel. Daniel not only stands in a long line of sinners, he stands on the shoulders of Abel, Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, and David. He stands on the shoulders of these pre-exile prophets that came before him like Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Amos, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. When you're reading those prophets in the Old Testament, you're reading prophets that came before Daniel or may have just reached right barely into the time of Daniel and Daniel is standing on the shoulders of those. This is saying that God has been faithful all along the way to send the word to his people. He's never kept his word from his people. Amazing. We're living in a time now. That's true. There's perversity everywhere. The, the nations are raging. The craziness that's around us. Who knows what will happen next? In our own country, we never would have thought 20 years ago that we would live in a country now where the definition of a woman and a man is so highly debated. 
I saw some news report the other day where they've done this great poll. I don't know if it was Gallup or somebody did this poll of Americans. You know, they poll like 3,000 and do percentages and all that business. And they came out and they said, oh, in these polls, it's, it's amazing that what we're seeing is, is that anywhere from, depending on the questions, 60% to 75% of Americans think that the whole transgender issue should be done away with. And they're raving in this news article. Do you realize there was a time 50 to 75 years ago where that poll would have been like 95%? The perversity that's in this world, the strangeness, the wickedness that's all around... We have to be thankful that God has not left us without his word. Just as Daniel was not left without a word that he was downstream of, and that Daniel in his day was one of God's men that he used to bring his word about for present generation and later generations. He's not left us without his word. And not leaving us without his word... It's a comforting thing because he doesn't leave us without an understanding of a future hope. And we're going to see some of that unfold as we move along. But the future hope here in Daniel is in the context of Isaiah 13 that we read this morning, Jeremiah 25, which we'll read next week. Both of those passages reveal impending judgment on Israel from Babylon and also judgment on Babylon from Medo-Persia. And when you think about Isaiah, you're thinking about someone who prophesied around 740 B.C. In Jeremiah, you're looking at someone who was prophesying around, say, 620 B.C. It's like in this progressive revelation around 740 B.C. and 620 B.C., God had been telling his people, you're headed this way, it's coming, turn, 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 you're headed this way. It's like the, the, the ride at Six Flags. It's my favorite ride. It's the air-conditioned ride. You know which one I'm talking about? Monster Plantation. And right as you go in, what's the first animal creature thing doing? Don't go in. Turn around. He's given a caution and a warning. What's coming next? Monsters. God's saying it's coming next. Warning's been happening. Warning's been happening. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and now Daniel and Ezekiel. But now they're having to give all this caution and warning in the context of the desolation. And Daniel's going to be one to prophesy a future hope. But that future hope doesn't come without further desolation from the nations and the nations raging against Israel and the nations raging against themselves. Babylon, great and mighty. Medo-Persia, great and mighty. Greece, Alexander the Great. Boom, he takes over everything. It's amazing if you see it on a map. Oh, and by the way, In the time of Jeremiah, when he's prophesying around 740 B.C., a little bit after that, there's these two mythical brothers in the mountains of Rome. 
that are said to have started this great burgeoning nation. And it takes some 400 to 500 years. But that nation, Rome, it rules and reigns with power and it smashes Greece. And each one of those nations smashing itself is also further dispersing the nation of Israel every time. And although the temple is rebuilt after the return in the time of Cyrus, it will be destroyed again in 70 A.D. God is not leaving his people without a future understanding. He's promising them also a future hope. And as you see Daniel unfold, you're seeing the promise of something near future, what God will do from, say, 590 B.C. all the way up to 70 A.D. and beyond. The picture of the Messiah to come and the one who will come again. But it's all in this context. It's been building all the way along. The dots need to be connected and the numbers need to be colored. But let's not make it so intricate and detailed. We miss the greatness of what God is doing in covenant history. The last observation this morning, sin has only one remedy from eternity, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has only one remedy from eternity, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. These three observations Sin has lengthy, deep, and complicated consequences. Sin is markedly rebellious with revelatory knowledge of God's faithfulness. And sin has only one remedy from eternity. These are all reasons to come in repentance and faith. God will one day stop the days of his patience toward the nations. And his son will return in judgment to consummate the final steps the full understanding of his reign he's reigning but there is not full understanding of his reign and it's not being worked out on the whole of the earth at the present time there's no doubt he's reigning but he's reigning in and through his people This is why the people need to get the message out there. This is why the people need to live the message. This is why the people, even when they're living a quiet life, as Paul instructed us, are to be living according to God's word. We see Daniel as a praying man in the first six chapters, and chapter 9 will make it clear even in praying for the nation. He's a praying man, and we ought to be a praying people. 
We ought to pray for ourselves, our children, our community leaders, our state leaders, and our national leaders. Even Paul brings us to this reminder, doesn't he? First of all, then, I urge you to Timothy that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Are we a praying people? For kings and all who are in authority, pray for them so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is a good, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I say glory be to our God for he has a purpose in all of these things. And let us not shrink back from living quiet, tranquil lives but living them to the glory of God. Let us not shrink back from speaking the truth in our sphere. Let us not shrink back from being a praying people. And may we follow in the line of Daniel that we would be a praying people. Even when the world tells us not to. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you're merciful beyond compare. We give all glory and honor to you for you alone are worthy of our praise. And yet we cannot come before your throne in our own righteousness. We come according to the righteousness of your son Christ alone imputed to those who believe. Lord, will you bring us to the time of the table thinking rightly and remembering rightly who we have believed in? Will you bring us to a remembrance of our own sin? Reminding us that we stand in a long line of sinners ourselves. And that we have committed great sins against you individually and personally. Bring us to the time of the table that you would humble us like you did the believing ones throughout all of history. Let us not be like the unbelievers of the Gentile world or the unbelievers of ethnic Israel, that we would not bow the knee to you. May we glory in you alone, even as we come to this table bowing before our one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.